Our scripture reading this morning is Joshua chapter 8, verses 30 to 35. That reading may be found in the Pew Bible on page 184. At that time, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Abal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel, as it is written in the book of the Law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones upon which no man has wielded an iron tool. And they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. And there, in the presence of the people of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the Law of Moses, which he had written. And all Israel, sojourner as well as native-born, with their elders and officers and their judges, stood on opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, half of them in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Abal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded at the first to bless the people of Israel. And afterward, he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel, and the women, and the little ones, and the sojourners who lived among them. Please join with me in prayer. Father, I pray that you would give us grace to respond to the word of Christ today with faith. That whatever it looks like for faith to respond to this text, I pray that we would respond that way. I pray that we would put ourselves under the word, that we would be judged by it and shaped by it, that our thinking would be changed and renewed by it, that you would convict us, that you would encourage us, that you would move us along in Christ's likeness. Those are things that your spirit does by the preaching of the word, and so we pray that you would do that for our good and for your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I know that confession is good for the soul, so I want to begin today with a confession. I've never seen Greece. <laughs> and another confession will follow that. If you've ever made a Danny Zuko or a Rizzo reference in my hearing, as some of you have done, I've laughed along and I've nodded, but I haven't known what you were talking about. <laughs> But I know some of the songs from Greece. I know you're the one that I want, and summer nights, and we go together, and I can do the hand jive. And I know the one where Olivia Newton-John is at her syrupy sweetest, hopelessly devoted to you. And I wonder if you realize that that's a song that's on the soundtrack of your life hopelessly devoted to you. Every single one of you is hopelessly devoted to the Lord God Almighty, whether you're a Christian or not. Right now, that's a song that would fit on your lips, hopelessly devoted to you. And so I want you to consider with me this morning the question, what does it mean to be devoted to? to the Lord. And how is it that every single person in the world, every single person in this room 
can be said to be devoted to the Lord and in what way right now are you devoted to the Lord? Those are questions that this text is going to help us answer. Now, we know from our text last week, Joshua 1, 10 through uh, chapter 5 and verse 15, that the people in Jericho had heard about the nation of Israel. They had heard about what mighty, miraculous acts Israel's God had done for the nation of Israel. Rahab said that the hearts of the people in Jericho melted away because of Israel and the Lord. And so as chapter 6 opens, and that's our text today, chapter 6 and verse 1 through chapter 8 and verse 35, as chapter 6 opens, you see that the city of Jericho is shut up tight to try and keep Israel out. No one goes out, no one goes in. And Jericho's defenses, whatever they are, make no difference to the Lord. Notice verse 2 of chapter 6. God says, see, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. Jericho's destruction is sure. The Lord is going to give Jericho to Joshua and to Israel. The city's defeat is so sure, in fact, that the Lord talks about it as though it's already happened. He says to Joshua, see, I have given Jericho into your hand. Nevertheless, though Jericho's defeat is sure, it's not actual yet. And so in verses 3 through 14, the Lord lays out for Joshua just how it is that Israel's going to gain victory over Jericho. So the men of war among the nation of Israel are to march around the city of Jericho once a day for six days. And here's how that worked. You had armed men at the front, followed by seven priests each who had a trumpet made from a ram's horn called a shofar. Then you had priests that were carrying the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. And then a rear guard that followed the Ark. And the Ark, which as we talked about last week, was a visible sign of the Lord's presence with the people, was at the center of this marching ritual to show that this was the Lord's work that was taking place. The Lord would bring about this victory. As we're going to see, Jericho did not fall because of Israel's military prowess. Jericho fell because this was a holy war that Israel had embarked on. And so once a day for six days, armed men followed by seven priests blowing seven shofars followed by the ark followed by a rear guard of armed men. And the trumpets were the only sound. There was no shouting for those six days from the people in the march. I have to imagine that after each pass, after they had blown the trumpets, they went back to the camp and said, show far, show good. <laughs> I debated on whether to do that. I'll be told by the pastoral staff on Wednesday that that was a bad idea. <laughs> then in verse 15 of chapter 6, we get to the seventh day. And on the seventh day, the march happened not once but seven times around Jericho. And when they had marched around Jericho for the seventh time, there was to be one 
final trumpet blast after which the people were to let loose a shout. Shout, Joshua says, for the Lord has given you the city. Verse 16. And that's what happened. Look with me at chapter 6, verse 20. So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout and the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. And if you know the song, Joshua fit the battle of Jericho, Jericho, Jericho. Joshua fit the battle of Jericho and the walls came and tumbling down. The account of Israel's destruction of Jericho really just takes one verse. There's nothing that's said here about how impressive Israel's military was. Joshua and Israel, as it turns out, didn't fit anything. It's the Lord who causes the walls to come a-tumbling down. But then notice with me Joshua's instructions to the people, beginning in verse 17, about what it is there to do after Jericho's walls fall. I want us to read it together. Joshua chapter 6, beginning at verse 17, because what we see here is going to come up again in our text today. And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest... When you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout and the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. So when the trumpets sound, and the people shout, and the walls collapse. The people of Israel are to go into the city and devote everything in the city to destruction with the edge of the sword. Men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys. The only things not to be destroyed are the city's silver and gold and vessels of bronze and iron. Verse 19 says that these things are to go into the treasury of the Lord. Now, what does it mean to devote something to the Lord for destruction? Do you see that phrase in verse 17? If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, there's a helpful footnote. That footnote says, that is, set apart, devoted as an offering to the Lord for destruction. To be devoted to the Lord in the way that verses 17 and 18 and verse 21 talks about is to be destroyed according to the Lord's expressed will and purpose. And except for Rahab and those in her house, every living thing in Jericho was to be destroyed according to the Lord's command. 
Now, in your sermon outline, I've given you a break in the action for us to consider the question, how should we think about Jericho's destruction? Every living thing in Jericho, men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys, were destroyed. They were devoted to the Lord in destruction according to the Lord's command. What are we to do with that? Some of you will have no problem at all with what the text says. And others of you might. But all of you ought to know that there have been many who've criticized the Lord and who've dismissed Him and His Word because of accounts in the Bible, just like this one. So how should we think about it? Well, there are two things that I want you to keep in mind when you think about what the Lord commands Israel to do in regard to Jericho, because it's what the Lord's going to command Israel to do elsewhere during the nation's conquest of Canaan that we'll see in Joshua. And the first thing we have to get straight is that the Lord's command to devote everything in Jericho to the Lord for destruction is a just, that is a righteous command. And it's just because everything the Lord does and wills is just. When Abraham is interceding for Sodom in Genesis chapter 18, Abraham asks the rhetorical question, Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? The answer, of course, is yes. The Lord, the judge of all the earth, shall always and only do what is just. Don't arrive at the scriptures with your own idea of what is just. How do you know what is just? Not because of what our sin-addled minds decide is just. We know what is just because we look in the Word of God at what the Lord does. And the Word reveals to us what is just. What is just? What God does. That's what's just. Let the Word shape your thinking, not the other way around. Deuteronomy 32.4 says of the Lord, The rock, His work, is perfect for all His ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just. And upright is he. Every living thing of any age in Jericho being devoted to the Lord in destruction is just because God said to do it. And just and upright is he. Part of what makes people recoil at accounts like this is that they think some injustice has been done. They think that innocence were slaughtered in the destruction of Jericho. But you need to be clear that from God's perspective, there are no innocents. Everyone is stained with sin. Everyone, from the moment of conception, is reckoned guilty of sin in Adam. Everyone has a heart of wickedness and rebellion against the Lord. We lose our way when we lose sight of this. God does no injustice to these in Jericho of any age who are destroyed because there is none who are innocent. There is none who are not guilty of sin. There's none who've not committed mutiny against their creator. The Bible gives us an indication of the sins of those in Canaan. In Genesis chapter 15, when the Lord is cutting his covenant with Abraham and Abraham is in a deep sleep, the Lord says to Abraham that his descendants, the Israelites, are going to come out of Egypt into Canaan, the land that Abraham is living in. But that that wouldn't happen until Genesis chapter 15 and verse 16, the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. 
The Amorites is a a catch-all term for all of the people in Canaan, which includes Jericho. And so the Lord tells Abraham in Genesis 15, 16, there's a time coming when Abraham's descendants, the Hebrews, the nation of Israel, are going to occupy Canaan. And it's going to happen at a time when the Amorites' iniquity, their worship of idols among their other sins, when their iniquity will have reached a tipping point and the Lord will patiently abide it no longer. And apparently that tipping point is reached when Israel crosses the Jordan River under Joshua. A second area where people lose their way and they're thinking about God's command to devote those in Jericho to destruction is in thinking, boy, that that Old Testament God is kind of grumpy. I'm really glad we get to the New Testament and we get to Jesus. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild. He's got to balance that Old Testament God out a little bit. I want to say to you that the scriptures rebuke anyone who thinks such a foolish thought that the God of the Old Testament would in any way be different from the God of the New Testament. That is a damnable heresy. And I want you to keep your marker in Joshua chapter 6 and turn with me to Revelation chapter 14 to demonstrate this. It's the last book of the Bible. If you're not familiar with the Bible and if you're using one of our pew Bibles and you don't have one of your own, you don't have a Bible of your own, take that pew Bible home with you as our gift to you. Last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, chapter 14, and I want to pick up the reading at verse 14. The Apostle John writes, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar the angel who has authority over the fire, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. Who's the one seated on the white cloud like a son of man with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And look again at what the Lord Jesus is involved with in verses 19 and 20. The great winepress of the wrath of God and the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. And what we have here is a vision of judgment on wicked, sinful humanity. Those who have not trusted in Christ at His return. That's what's in view here. And Jesus 
gentle Jesus, meek and mild. He's the one leading the charge as the one who gathers sinners and casts them into the winepress of the wrath of God from which flows blood as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia, which is just a reference for the vastness of this judgment. And in Revelation 19, we see Jesus again. This time as the rider on the white horse, and John says of Jesus there, his eyes are like a, a flame of fire, and his, he's clothed in a robe dipped with blood, and the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses, and from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he'll rule them with a rod of iron, and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And an angel calls out to the birds of prey overhead in this vision, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And John says that any who gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. What happened in Jericho under Joshua was an instrument of the Lord's just and righteous wrath. And as bloody as it was in Jericho, it was but a foretaste of the just and righteous wrath to come when the one to whom Joshua points, our Lord Jesus Christ, is going to execute his vengeance on all who have not believed on him until the blood of his enemies flows as high as a horse's bridle. And so, brothers and sisters, how should we think about Jericho's destruction? We should think of it as just. No sinner ever gets worse than he or she deserves from the Lord. And every man and woman, young and old in Jericho, was a sinner. And we should ask God to keep us so that we will not face his judgment at the last day, the judgment of which Jericho's destruction is a type. And we should herald the gospel to our friends and family and those that we encounter with passion and with urgency because if they will not repent and believe the gospel, they will be devoted to the Lord in destruction no less than those in Jericho. That's how we should think about Jericho's destruction. So back in our text, back in Joshua chapter 6, in verse 22, we see Joshua making good on the Israelites' spies' pledge to Rahab from back in chapter 2 we saw last week. As Jericho is meeting its doom, Rahab and those in her house are brought out. I said to you last week that Rahab lied. I want to take that back. That's not a good characterization of what Rahab did because lying is a sin and Rahab didn't sin. Rahab dealt in truth because she allied herself with the Lord who is truth and with his people. And because of that, when all the rest in Jericho are judged on this day, Rahab and those in her house are delivered. And if you want proof, the writer says, go visit her. 
At the time this is written, he says Rahab is still alive and well in Israel. And lest anyone think of rebuilding the city that the Lord's judgment fell on, the Lord warns through Joshua that anyone who rebuilds Jericho is going to be cursed and that that rebuilding is going to be at the cost of that man's first and youngest sons. And sure enough, if you skip ahead to 1 Kings chapter 16, during the reign of the wicked king of Israel, Ahab, there's a man named Hiel who rebuilt Jericho. And according to the word of the Lord here in Joshua chapter 6, it meant the death of Hiel's sons, Abiram and Segub. And then the narrative of Jericho's being devoted to the Lord in destruction ends in verse 27 with a word about the Lord being with Joshua. That truth has been all over the book up till now. Just as the Lord promised he would be back in chapter 1 and verse 5. And because of the Lord's favor on Joshua, Joshua's renown is spreading throughout the land of Canaan. That's a pretty high note to end on, isn't it? Nothing but happy times ahead for Israel, right? Well, let's read in chapter 7, beginning at verse 1. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things. And the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Aven, east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not have all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So about 3,000 men went up there from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them at the descent, and the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening, he and the elders of Israel. And they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. Oh, Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? Back in chapter 6, Joshua gives explicit instructions from the Lord to Israel about what was to be done with the spoil of Jericho. The only things not to be destroyed were the gold and silver and the bronze and iron. Those were to go into the treasury of the Lord. But an Israelite named Achan disobeyed the Lord. He didn't devote the things he found in Jericho to the Lord, and the whole of Israel suffered defeat at Ai as a result. Thirty-six of his fellow Hebrews were killed because of his sin. Don't, don't think that the defeat was because of some hubris on Israel's part. You know, it says, do not have all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and attack I. Don't make the whole people toil up there for their few. That's not hubris. That's a reasonable allocation of resources. But it wouldn't have mattered on this day if Joshua had sent a million soldiers. 
Because there was sin in the camp, the Lord willed that Israel be defeated at Ai, and they were. They didn't take the city. And those who went into the battle from Israel, the ones who weren't killed anyway, were sent into retreat. They fled from the men of Ai. And now, you'll notice from the text, it's the hearts of the people of Israel that are melting. Remember how it used to be said that Israel, because of the Lord, caused the hearts of the Canaanites to melt? Those tables have turned. The Lord is opposed to Israel now because of Achan's sin. And Joshua doesn't know what to do. Joshua is thinking on the Lord's unequivocal promises of victory. Premised on the Lord promising to be with Joshua and with Israel. And Joshua has seen the Lord work in miraculous and mighty power at the Jordan and then in Jericho. And now Israel's been defeated. I don't read Joshua's prayer in verses 6 through 9 in the way that I read about Israel's grumbling in the wilderness against Moses and the Lord. No, I think Joshua's prayer of lament comes out of a profound confusion. We know right now what Joshua doesn't yet know. The Lord has promised Israel's victory, but all Joshua has seen is now Israel has turned their backs before their enemies in retreat. The Lord has promised to give Israel the land in faithfulness to his covenant with Abraham to make of him a great nation. But now Joshua says, the inhabitants of the land surround us and they cut off our name from the earth. And worst of all to Joshua, it appears that the fame of the Lord's great name, verse 9, is threatened. Whereas the name of the Lord melted the hearts of the Canaanites, now there's an example of soldiers fighting in the Lord's name and losing. But beginning in verse 10, mercifully, the Lord lets Joshua in on what's behind Israel's defeat at Ai. The defeat was because, and I want you to note very carefully here in verse 11, their defeat was because Israel had sinned. Do you see that? Israel had transgressed the Lord's covenant that he commanded them. They, verse 10, Israel had taken some of the devoted things. They, Israel, had stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. And what we see here is what's referred to as corporate solidarity. God was not regarding Achan and the nation of Israel separately. The sin of the one had been reckoned by God as the sin of the many. Do you remember what the Lord says to Joshua back in chapter 1? He says, The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. But Israel wasn't careful to do what was written in the book of the law. That is the, the law of Moses, the first five books of the Bible. Because if they had, what Achan did never would have happened. Because in the book of the law, in Deuteronomy 20, the Lord says, In the cities of these people that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction as the Lord your God has commanded, that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they've done for their gods. And so you sin against the Lord your God. 
Achan has violated the Lord's command. He had not devoted to complete destruction the city of Jericho. And so he's transgressed the Lord's covenant. And by extension, Israel had transgressed the Lord's covenant. Therefore, the battle at Ai was lost. They did not prosper. And in verses 16 to 23, the one who's caused Israel's shameful defeat is identified. The Lord superintended the results of the casting of lots. Maybe the way we might try to decide something by throwing dice. And the lots revealed that the guilty party was in the tribe of Judah, in the clan of the Zerahites, in the household of Zabdi, and finally, as the household of Zabdi is considered one by one, the lots fall on Zabdi's son, Achan. And Joshua tells Achan to give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give him praise. In Hebrew, the words for praise and confession are related. In the same way, you might tell your child to fess up when you've caught them disobeying you. And so Achan does confess. He acknowledges, do you see, beginning in verse 20 of chapter 7, he acknowledges that his sin is against the Lord God of Israel. That's right. His sin is against the Lord, and he tells exactly how he sinned. He saw a cloak, it caught his eye. He saw some silver and a bar of gold, and he wanted them, so he took them. And then he acknowledged where those things were hidden in his tent. And then Joshua sends men to check out Achan's story, and it checks out, and the items that weren't devoted to destruction were taken out of the tent, and they were brought before Joshua and Israel. And verse 23 says these things were laid out before the Lord. God is a witness to all of this. And these objects that were in the camp because of Achan's sin, a sin which led to the shameful defeat of the Lord's people, a sin that led to the death of 36 fellow Israelites. Just like the Lord warned against back in chapter 6, he said, but you, do you remember we read this? Keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. And Achan had brought trouble upon Israel. And so Joshua takes Achan and his family and his livestock and all his possession to the valley of trouble, to the valley of Achor. And now that there's a confession and tangible evidence of Achan's sin, the punishment is to be meted out. And what Achan should have done to the things in Jericho is now done to him. He and his family and his livestock, remember the command from the Lord was to devote to destruction with the edge of the sword, men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep and donkeys. Now they're all devoted to destruction by being stoned to death and then being burned. And Achan brought trouble on Israel and now the Lord brings trouble on him. And now we have yet another memorial pile of stones, don't we? We saw one last week in the middle of the Jordan and another one built to Jordan's west. This time we have a memorial to Israel of the seriousness of keeping covenant with the Lord. A memorial to Israel of the awful punishment that awaits those who will not keep the Lord's covenant. And having put away the sin in the camp and dealing with it according to the Lord's command, verse 26 says, the Lord turned from his burning anger. Maybe you're asking, why were Achan's sons and daughters and livestock also stoned and burned? Wasn't it Achan who sinned? 
Some have sought to explain this by saying that Achan's family must have had a hand in his sin. They must have helped him hide the ill-begotten goods. The problem with that is that the text doesn't say it. And even if that were true, did his oxen and donkeys and sheep help him hide it too? No. The best way to understand what happened here is with a phrase I used earlier, corporate solidarity. In the case of Achan, the sin of the one in God's eyes was the sin of the many. Achan's sin brought trouble, not only to his family, but all Israel. And Israel would have lost every other battle they would have fought. And who knows how many more Israelite soldiers would have died until Achan's sin was dealt with. Deuteronomy 24.16 is true. Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. But in this instance, the Lord reckoned Achan's sin as the sin of his family. They were stoned and burned because of their own sin, because the Lord reckoned Achan's sin to all of the family of which he was head. The old Westminster Theological Seminary professor John Murray helps us to see that the Lord employs this corporate solidarity throughout the Scriptures. Quote, The principle of solidarity is embedded in the Scripture and is exemplified in numerous ways. It is a patent fact that in God's government of men, there are the institutions of the family, of the state, and of the church in which solidaric or corporate relationships obtain and are operative. This is simply to say that God's relations to men and the relations of men to one another are not exclusively individualistic. God deals with men in terms of these corporate relationships, and men must reckon with their corporate relations and responsibilities, end quote. You see this in your own family. If your parents moved from one town to another when you were a little child, they didn't ask your opinion or put it to a vote. You had nothing to do with the decision. But you nevertheless had to learn a different address and a different school and all the rest, didn't you? You were a part of a unit. You were under a head. And the decision of the one affected the lives of the many. The Bible hinges on corporate solidarity. In Romans chapter 5, Paul teaches that sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. Did you hear that? When Adam sinned, we all sinned. Adam's sin was accounted by God to all who were in Adam. And Achan's sin is in one way accounted to all Israel because he's part of Israel, but it's especially reckoned to all who were in Achan. It's reckoned to all who descended from him, his sons and daughters, just like for us with Adam. But this corporate solidarity does not only work for condemnation. Think about Rahab. She was the one who saved the lives of the Hebrew spies, but who was it who escaped the destruction of Jericho? Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. Do you see how that works? The Lord accounted the reward of Rahab's faithfulness to everyone in her household. 
This corporate solidarity, even in the account of Jericho's fall, has worked both positively and negatively. And you, my brothers and sisters in Christ, ought to thank the Lord every day for corporate solidarity. It's how you've come to have eternal life. Later in Romans chapter 5, the Apostle Paul writes, As one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the many, for as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Paul is teaching that on the cross, Jesus' obedience to the Father's will led to the justification of all, all who belong to him by faith. Yes, when Adam sinned, the Lord reckoned Adam's sin and Adam's punishment and Adam's curse on all humanity. But as Jesus died on the cross, the Father reckoned to Jesus the sin guilt of all of his people. And Jesus so identified with us in our sins that he was punished as though he himself had committed our sins. He suffered under the wrath of God the Father Almighty. He shed his blood and was in agony as he died in humiliation because God had accounted to him our sin debt. But we who have faith in Christ have had reckoned to us. We have had accounted to us Jesus's righteousness, his perfect, unspoiled sin slate, his sonship and union with the Father. We've had reckoned to us, dear ones, Jesus' perfect, spotless obedience to the Father. And without corporate solidarity, we couldn't be saved, beloved. So don't stumble over how Israel and Achan's family could suffer because of Achan's sin. As Professor Murray said, God deals with men in terms of these corporate relationships. And as Christians, we ought to be eternally glad that he does. Well, now that Achan's sin has been dealt with according to the Lord's command, the Lord says to Joshua in chapter 8, verse 1, Do not fear and do not be dismayed. Joshua was both those things after defeat at Ai, you'll recall. But now the Lord assures him in the same way that the Lord assured Joshua before Jericho. Do you see what the Lord says to him in verse 1 of chapter 8? See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai and his people, his city, and his land. The Lord is once again on Israel's side. The battle's outcome is sure. And again, the people are to devote Ai to destruction. Except that in this instance, Israel is permitted to keep the city's spoil and livestock as plunder for themselves. And I, I think if Achan had just waited for the Lord's provision instead of succumbing to the temptation to covet. And in verses 3 through 9, we see how I's destruction is going to be accomplished. It's quite a brilliant strategy. Joshua commands 30,000 Israelite soldiers to lie in ambush hidden behind the city. And then Joshua... And some 5,000 other Israelite soldiers are going to approach Ai. And when the soldiers in Ai come out to fight the approaching Israelite soldiers, they're going to turn tail and run, just as Israel did before. And Ai's military force is going to think, we've got Israel licked yet again. But they will have left Ai unguarded, and then those 30,000 Israelites that have been waiting behind the city are going to rush in and take it and plunder it and then set it on fire. And that's exactly how the Bible says it went down. Verse 17 says there wasn't a single 
men left in Ai or Bethel because they all went out in pursuit of Israel and left the city as easy pickings. The Lord tells Joshua to hold up his javelin as a signal to the ambushing soldiers. And when Joshua held out his javelin toward Ai, those 30,000 ran and entered the city and captured it and set it on fire. And then the men who had run out of Ai to pursue Israel look back. They see the smoke of their city going up to heaven and they realize we're surrounded. And verse 23 says that Israel struck them down until there was left none that survived or escaped. And after the soldiers were killed, all in the city, men and women, the text says, just as at Jericho, were killed. And after Israel had taken the livestock and the spoils of the city as plunder, they reduced I to an ash heap. And they spared the king of Ai temporarily, brought him to Joshua. And Joshua hanged the king of Ai on a tree. That's a cursed death, according to Deuteronomy 21. But they took down the dead king's body from the tree at sunset, also according to Deuteronomy 21, and covered it with a great heap of stones, which lasted as another memorial until the day when this account was written. Doesn't that call to mind, beloved, the day when the one to whom Joshua points died the death of the accursed by being hanged on a tree? His dead body was taken down from the wooden cross before sundown, and he was covered with a stone. Hallelujah for the one who redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, Paul writes to the Galatians, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of, the, of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And our text today ends with the text that our sister Laura read to us before the sermon, chapter 8, verses 30 through 35. After I is devoted to destruction, Israel heads some 20 miles north to Mount Ebal. The Lord told Moses and the elders of Israel back in Deuteronomy 27 that when the nation crosses over the Jordan to the promised land, they are to go to Mount Ebal and do what Joshua is doing in these verses. They're to build an altar of uncut stones, and they're to offer burnt offerings and peace offerings, just as Israel does. And just like Israel did when the Lord gave the law to Israel at Sinai, they're to write, Deuteronomy 27 says, they're to write on the stones at Mount Ebal a copy of the law of Moses, which Joshua also does. And this location is significant. Mount Ebal is at Shechem which makes this a terrific place for a covenant renewal ceremony because Shechem is where the Lord first promised to give Abraham's descendants the promised land. It's where Abraham built an altar to the Lord as Israel is doing right now. And Israel stands, the text says, at either side of the ark to signal that the Lord's presence is at the center of this ceremony. But note verse 34 of chapter 8. Joshua read to Israel, all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law, there was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel. And so Joshua brings to their remembrance what the law of the Lord calls for. It calls for obedience to the Lord's commands, summarized in the Ten Commandments, of course, as love for God and love for neighbor. And Joshua calls to their remembrance the blessings that attend faithfulness to the covenant and the curses 
that fall on those who fail to keep covenant with the Lord. And Israel has been given in their very recent past examples of both of those, haven't they? The blessings they experienced in the conquering of Jericho and Ai. The curses they experienced at the hands of Ai and what they saw Achan and his family suffer because of Achan's covenant unfaithfulness. You'll see from the sermon outline that in regard to application, I want us to think about the idea that we've seen throughout our text in a couple of different ways. Being devoted to the Lord. As I said to you at the start of the sermon, your question is not, will I be devoted to the Lord? Instead, the question is, how will you be devoted to the Lord? And you can be devoted to the Lord in one of two ways. The first way you can be devoted to the Lord is in destruction. Just like those in Jericho, except Rahab and her house. Just like Achan and his family. Just like those in Ai. And so I ask you, will you be devoted to the Lord in destruction? Will you who are unbelievers here this morning remain enemies of God? The Bible says in James chapter 4, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You are an enemy of God according to the scriptures if you aren't a Christian because you're still treasuring this world and you're still treasuring the things of this world more than Christ or else you would have come to him in repentance and faith. And in love, I want to say that if you're not a Christian, you're an enemy of God. The Bible makes that plain, and the Bible also makes plain that the enemies of God are going to be devoted to destruction. Psalm 92, for behold, your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered. And what we see happening to the enemies of Israel in our text this morning, if you are wise at all, my unbelieving friend, should be a warning to you who are outside of Christ. The devotion to destruction that we see in our text informs what's going to happen when Christ returns in judgment and in vengeance and in wrath against all of His enemies which includes those who've not run to him for rescue from sin and death and hell. And when the Lord Jesus returns, my unbelieving friend, will you suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might? You will if you die us outside of Christ. But I have a good word for you. On the authority of God's word, I can say to you, that you can be a Rahab amid a society in which you're surrounded by God's enemies. Rahab confessed faith in the Lord God. She pleaded for rescue from the destruction to come. She had faith in the one who would descend from her, the Lord Jesus Christ. And you saw in our text that she was spared when Jericho was destroyed. And I want to say to you who are outside of Christ, you can be spared. You don't have to be devoted to the Lord in destruction. You don't have to die in your sin. The Lord will be merciful to you. He will save you. He will rescue you. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, the Bible promises you will be saved. 
you will no longer be one of God's enemies, but one of God's sons. You'll be made one of God's people. And God himself will be with you as your God to lead you into the eternal promised land. You who are outside of Christ, whether you've heard me preach the gospel to you one time or a thousand times, I plead with you, do not be devoted to the Lord in destruction. Turn from your sin and turn to Christ today. Pray today and ask God to save you. And my brothers and sisters, I ask you, will you be devoted to the Lord? That is, will you live a life of devotion to the Lord in covenant faithfulness? I'm sobered by the account that we see regarding Achan. Whatever else it teaches, it teaches that God takes sin seriously. And it teaches that we ought to take sin seriously. Now, let's not get confused. The Bible teaches unequivocally that once a person is saved by grace through faith in Jesus, that person will never be lost. The Christian can't sin his way out of grace. Hallelujah. Nevertheless, when you think of the characteristics of a Christian, one of them is that the Christian takes sin seriously and wars against sin. Not because the Christian is afraid of losing his salvation, but because sin grieves the one whom our soul loves. The Christian fights against sin because it was because of sin that the Lord Jesus suffered on the cross. And, and we hate what makes our Lord suffer. We hate what damns men to hell. So I call on you, Christian, respond to this text by warring against sin. Repent from sin, supposedly big sin and supposedly little sin. Sin of actions, sin of doing, sin of thoughts, sin of attitudes, sin of speech. Repent, turn from those sins, ask God to give you grace to be victorious in your fight over sin. Brothers and sisters, be devoted to the Lord by leveraging the power over sin that you have as a partaker in the new covenant. God has caused us who believe to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And so employ the Spirit's power that's at work in you to say no to temptation and yes to obedience. Go after sin. Ask the Lord to show you sin and forsake it. Repent from it. Think about how to avoid it in the future. Always mindful that you're no longer sin's slave. Always mindful that you've been rescued from sin's eternal wages by Jesus' death and resurrection. And be mindful, my brothers and sisters. Oh, please hear me. We see from our text today that sin doesn't live in a vacuum. That is, your sin almost always affects others in ways you can see. If you're a spouse, your sin affects your spouse in harmful ways. 
If you're a parent, your sin can affect your children in harmful ways. You who aren't married, your sin can affect your roommates or your friends or your co-workers. Your sin almost always affects others in ways you can see. When I think about Aiken's sin affecting the camp, I think about the fact that your sin can affect our church. We don't have to try very hard to think of instances of that, do we? And in a room this size, I have to imagine that there are at least one or two of you that are dallying with sins that if they are left unchecked, if they remain unrepented from, would cause significant destruction in your family and perhaps significant destruction in our church. Resolve today by God's grace and the power of His Spirit to be done with that sin. Rise up, O men and women of God. Have done with lesser things. Confess. Ask for forgiveness where needed. Don't hide from your sin. That went poorly for Achan and for the whole of the nation of Israel. Brothers and sisters, what we see from our text is a call to be devoted to the Lord in covenant faithfulness. That means waging no holds barred war against sin. And it means pursuing the Lord by prioritizing over all else. Him, His people, and His gospel. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the Word of Christ. We thank You for Your Son, the one greater than Joshua, who by his death and resurrection has caused us to be rescued from the eternal consequences of sin. I pray, Lord, that those in this room, perhaps those at some later time listening to this recording who are outside of Christ, I pray that by your Spirit you would convict them of their sin and give them grace to turn from their sin and believe the gospel. Father, help us to be people always devoted to the Lord in covenant faithfulness all the way to the end. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.